0: Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck.
1: Welcome to Go Green Radio, folks. Thank you so much for joining us. Today we have a really important topic that we're going to be talking about because it's something that affects every single one of us. Um the the show title this week talks about toxins in the trash, but we're actually going to be talking about much more than that. We have the founder and executive director of the Product Stewardship Institute, Scott Cassell with us, and he's going to be talking to us about a number of products that we may have in our homes and our businesses every day. And some of the health effects that these products can have, particularly if they are not used or disposed of properly, his organization has been around for almost 10 years, way before green was cool. And they are helping manufacturers, retailers, consumers, um, and government agencies deal with this issue of hazardous materials, toxic materials, in our way stream, and what to do about that. And I'm so pleased to have Scott on the show. As we go through this interview, folks, if you want to look at his website while you're listening to us, don't leave us on voiceamerica.com. Open a new tab in your web browser and go to www.productstewardship.us. And there you can follow along as we interview Scott. Well, Scott, thanks so much for joining us on Go Green Radio. We're so glad to have you.
2: Thank you very much. I'm very glad to be here.
1: Now, you founded the Product Stewardship Institute nearly 10 years ago. Talk to us about what prompted you to form that organization to begin with. I always like to give our Go Green Radio listeners a little, little history when we talk to an interesting guest like you. What was the, what was the genesis of PSI?
2: Well, thank you. Um I've been in the field for over 25 years now and I have seen uh, quite a lot of changes as many of the uh uh those folks on the line may remember, you know, way back when uh, as you said before green was cool, many of us were kind of banging our heads on the, on the wall or people were saying, you know, the environmental movement uh, really was was secondary and it has been on, only over the past 10 years or really only over the past one or two years that things have really exploded. Um, in the year two thousand is really when PSI uh started up, I had uh been uh at the um executive office of environmental affairs. It's the state environmental agency in Massachusetts. I had been the waste policy director for about seven years. I was working on my fourth solid waste master plan. I was the liaison there for the governor's office and um, for the legislature on all waste policy issues in the state so i was working with uh many good people here in massachusetts on figuring out how to reduce waste and how to increase recycling and to deal with all the toxic products and what we saw was a leveling off in the 90s of recycling um and waste was continuing to be uh increase in generation uh there were more toxic products being uh gen made all the time and generated and the local governments um are the place where they have to deal with these products they're the ones where the burden falls um and we tried to work um as a state official uh we tried to work with the local governments but the bottom line was um that they didn't have the funding in order to deal with these products um if they collected all the products that they needed to collect, you know, to take them out of the waste stream, uh, the products which we'll be talking about here, you know, the thermostats or the fluorescent lamps um, or or paint or other products that are high priorities to pull out of the waste stream. If they were to collect all of the ones that they really needed to to make an environmental difference, they would go bankrupt. So it was pretty clear that we needed a a drastic change in how we were managing products. Uh, And I was, uh, at the time, the president of a national organization called the North American Hazardous Materials Management Association, NAMA. It's quite a mouthful. Um, But I was there, and um, our executive director had um, invited a speaker uh, from the British Columbia Ministry up in Canada. His name was Ron Dreger, and Ron came and spoke about this strange concept called product stewardship or extended producer responsibility as it's called and uh... at that time uh... the the province of british columbia had these systems in place for over, in, over a dozen different products, um, and it was a way to uh, fund them because you have the manufacturers uh, being responsible for setting up the systems for recycling or safe management of those products. It wasn't relying on the local governments um, to do this, to spend the money. It wasn't relying on the taxpayer funds. Um, so the light bulb went off in, in my head and I brought these concepts back um, here, in the United States, and I tried to develop some voluntary initiatives with a number of the manufacturers, the battery manufacturers, lamp manufacturers. I had them come in, and they really uh, weren't uh, receptive. They said, "You know, Massachusetts, you're one state. You know, we we we're a national or international company. You know, we, that's very nice, which what you want to do, but I'm sorry, we we we're doing plenty, and and that's enough." Um, so it showed the need for a national effort. Um and Massachusetts was not going to you know alone was not going to change the practices of the industry. So um I worked with some colleagues. I developed a business plan while I was at the at the state uh and the state um liked the idea of forming this new organization. I worked in concert with the University of Massachusetts. Um end the State Environmental Agency and uh we started up shop. We created uh this new organization and, and uh in December of two thousand and at that time, when I called around to see if, uh, states were interested, if state officials were interested in, in this idea, I got overwhelming response. They, they understood it immediately. They all had the same problems. I, it was not just the Californias, the Massachusetts, the, the Washington states and minnesota It was, uh, Missouri and Kansas and other, other states out there. Everybody understood what, what was needed and, uh, they started to rally and, and, uh, and that's how we were we started up.
1: That's fascinating, and and I did notice, and we're going to talk about this throughout the, the episode today, but you do have a lot of those heartland states involved. I mean, I'm a native Illinoisan. I live in California now, but uh, sometimes when we think of these types of issues, you know, environmentally responsible uh, legislation, public policy, you know, that sort of thing, people tend to think of the West Coast or the Northeast, but you really have a uh, terrific representation of all the various regions of the united states and and I think that speaks well to like exactly what you said uh, that these states recognize that it's not just the environmental piece that we're we're looking at there is a cost associated with the proper disposal. Of these, and and by banding together, uh, we certainly are going to be more efficient, and and that's that's good news for local governments. They're always scrapping even before the economic downturn. Now, when you started the organization back in two thousand, uh, you know, you mentioned that a lot of of state and local governments were supportive. Did you have any opposition? I mean, where did you find sort of the support? Uh, where did you find opposition? What was it like back? back in the day before we like we said green was cool
2: well uh, as i said i had uh, over 20 states were represented uh, at that early meeting so uh, right off the bat there was a uh, a group, uh, a significant group, um, of state officials, um, and an increasing, uh, lead, an increasing number of local officials. Uh, the local officials, I think, came a little later because, uh, it, you know, as I said, that that, they have the burden. They have to manage the, the, the waste, and it took them a while, uh, some of them to kind of pick up their head and recognize that, gee, we can, there is help out there and to understand this concept. So the states, uh, I think were leading this effort. I think some of the, uh, environment environmental groups uh, came a little bit uh, at that time or a little bit uh, after here in the United States. Uh, but the opposition has always you know come from the manufacturers uh, you know they initially this idea of uh, of a change that they need to take responsibility for uh, the products that they make um, or the products that they sell in the case of retailers. Uh, it is a very different concept. Um, and this is the, you know, why the term extended producer responsibility came about because it's extending the responsibility of a producer um or manufacturer we call it here in the United States beyond the typical uh, facility. beyond the uh the end of pipe where uh you have um you know air emissions or water emissions from the facility, but it extends it to the end of life for that product. So, you know, if you're making a computer, um your your responsibility is uh not only, you know, once uh that that piece of equipment leaves the manufacturing plant, but uh, after the consumer no longer needs that product uh... to set it up so um set up a recycling system or in the case of pharmaceuticals to set up a safe disposal uh system. So this is a complete shift uh, in the mindset of companies. Uh and for the menu, and for the retailers also it's it's different because uh they're very convenient locations uh for the consumer. The the retailers really know the consumer, you know, better than anybody. They know what what consumers want. They know how to uh, how to get them to, uh, you know, into the store. Um and many of the uh retail locations can serve as convenient drop-off locations for certain products that we want to keep out of the waste stream. And it's taken a while for them to understand that uh, they can play uh, a very significant role environmentally, and it can also help business by bringing people into their store um, to perhaps buy some other products. So I'd say that the manufacturers, uh, it took a while for them to turn around, and I I even uh, joke around and say there's kind of five steps of this grieving process that manufacturers go through. They come uh, the First response is often it's it, 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 there's no problem, uh, and then after they say well there's a problem, but it, the taxpayers should pay. It should be government programs. We need more you know government programs to do this. Then they realize that, you know that's increased taxes. That's not so cool. So then they say mm-hmm. well uh, you know let's let's put a, a fee on this product uh, and you know and uh, and government uh, can take responsibility for that. Anyway, it, it, it it's a while before the manufacturers start to really internalize these costs and to accept it as another cost of doing business. And it really takes some time uh, internally in order for these changes to take place.
1: Well, and I imagine, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this as the show continues, but you know, the change in the consumer themselves has got to have made a big difference. I mean, 10 years ago when you started PSI, Consumers were in a very different place when it comes to environmentally responsible um, patronage of, of companies. I think consumers have come around a lot in the last ten years, and uh, you know just by virtue of the fact that we see you know the power of the green mommy bloggers to get baby <laughs> bottles with BPA out of grocery stores. I mean that just on Twitter alone. I mean I think that that. Significant change in the consumer mindset. I mean, obviously that's the bread and butter of the manufacturers and the retailers. I think that's got to be helpful as well. You know, a lot of folks call me, uh, you know, and they ask me, how do you get a nonprofit started? And I know within the, the minute that we have left, it probably won't give you a lot of time to answer this. But, you know, knowing what you know now about what it takes to run a nonprofit organization, for those who are out there, uh, maybe thinking about starting their own. Uh, what would you tell them about running a nonprofit organization?
2: Well, the, the the bottom line is: start something new if the need is great. If the, if there's a real need and a real demand, and it's not being met out there. Uh, if there's a gap in the service, um, then then do something. But don't start if you can build from an existing group uh you know there there's a lot of ego that comes into some of this and i see that that's always a challenge in terms of organizations working together um i'd mm-hmm. say focus on the on the need and focus on partnering and how to jointly um get to the end goal um and also uh you know starting any organization it's like your own finances diversify your funding sources uh and your partnerships be strong be a, a strong network and branch out
1: I agree, 100%. Well, folks, we're going to be back with more from Scott Cassell and the Product Stewardship Institute right after this quick commercial break. Don't go away. We'll be right back with more Go Green Radio. Can
0: you hear me? your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26 percent, 43 percent, or 14 percent?
2: Now, Mrs. Johnson, before we close on your mortgage loan, I want to make sure you remember Mike. Hi. You can trust me. I'm African American, just like you. So, here's the low monthly payments
3: and interest rates we promised, and here's where they triple. The rest of this stuff is just here to make sure that we get your house when you can't pay us back.
0: What a lovely house. Predatory lenders are never this easy to spot. Call us at 866-222-FAIR and protect yourself with the facts. A public service announcement brought to you by the National Fair Housing Alliance and the Ad Council
3: at 1 p.m. PST right here on the Voice America channel.
1: Welcome back to Go Green Radio, folks. We're so glad to have you, as always. I want to give a special shout-out to our Go Green Initiative family. We have a lot of folks who are listening. For those of you who might be unfamiliar with the organization that I'm talking about, it's my fourth baby. I have three kids, and... And my fourth baby is the Go Green Initiative. I started it back in 2002. It's now the largest environmental education program in the world, operating in all 50 U.S. states and in 36 countries around the globe. And we have a lot of our Go Green Initiative family listening in today, so I want to say thank you all. To listening to Go Green Radio. We're joined today by Scott Cassell. He is the founder and executive director of the Product Stewardship Institute. If you want to check out his website while we conduct the interview today, please don't turn off this web browser. Stay on VoiceAmerica.com, but open a new tab in your web browser and go to www.productstewardship.us. and there you'll be able to see what Scott's up to. He's been doing this for about 10 years. And uh, I'm just thrilled to death to have you on the show today, Scott. Thanks so much for your time.
2: It's great being
1: here. Well, I want to talk specifically about some of the programs that you're working on. You address a lot of specific products, and folks, if you're on his website, you can click on the products uh, button on the website there. Let's start with pharmaceuticals. Um, If you would, Scott, please explain to our listeners what the problem is when it comes to pharmaceuticals and what... PSI is working on to address this issue that I'm afraid is really threatening our water supply?
2: Yeah, pharmaceuticals is a very interesting issue um, because we uh, break down the problem into four different areas. Uh, One is aquatic impacts of the pharmaceuticals uh, that are entering our waterway. The other are uh, the um, potential um, health uh... and human impacts from that from perhaps drinking water Um, but even more significant right now which driving this issue here in the united states are accidental poisonings and drug abuse in the home for the leftover medications there's been um, a lot of attention being brought um... to bear from uh, kids who are uh taking medicines uh, out of the cabinets that um, are prescription drugs uh and uh, and using them uh, illegally and so there's a, there's a need for a safe place for disposal of the medications um and what's what's happened is that we've started to detect um these medications uh, in our waterways the US geological survey has done uh some testing way back and the AP um Associated Press has done a number of stories to highlight the fact that we're we're actually detecting um, um, quantities of medications in our waterways. So we don't fully know what the impacts are on human health, but we have seen that it's changed the gender of fish, particularly those downstream where these uh, pharmaceuticals have been uh, introduced into the waterway where there's higher concentrations so we know that they're changing the aquatic species and from that there's a lot of concern of course in terms of what this means uh for human health so um, uh, but the, the the issue that's driving pharmaceuticals uh, in the US is the the accidental poisonings from uh, uh kids or pets taking this stuff out of the garbage or out of the medicine cabinets and then as i said the drug abuse now what we're trying to do there's uh, the, part of the issue is that it's very expensive and very cumbersome to collect these products um, these take back products take back um programs for pharmaceuticals um and also there's uh many of these drugs have traditionally been flushed the 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 message has been to flush these in the toilet we do not want people to do that uh, anymore because that gets directly into the waterway. Um, so what we're um, PSI is working on is um, changing federal uh legislation, congressional legislation to change the Controlled Substances Act um, that will um, make it possible for these take back programs to um, be more flexibly uh, collected, like uh, these collections to take place uh more easily in communities and at at less cost. Um, and also to send the message universally that we do not want flushing. So that's one of the things that we've been working on. On this issue, we're working with a whole range of, uh, of, of uh, pharmaceutical companies, uh healthcare providers, waste management companies, state, local, uh, and federal government agencies and others to try to address this issue.
1: Well, and it's complicated because, you know, it's one thing for uh, a pharmaceutical manufacturer to take their waste products um, for instance, maybe to a Covanta energy plant where they can be safely incinerated. But it's another thing altogether when you start talking about having a location for consumers to drop off unneeded, you know, pharmaceuticals. I mean, my daughter has asthma and she has expired asthma medication. There's nothing in my Community for me to do with it. There's no place I can take it. Um, if I put it into the garbage, I can, I'm concerned that you know some of it's liquid. It might reach into you know through the landfill barrier and into the waterways, and that's you know that's not safe for anybody to be drinking or or what have you. So this really is a complicated issue, and and so we'll be watching what PSI does, you know, and, and the successes that you have. Um, I'd like to hear more about that as you progress. You know, mercury is another substance that's been in the news recently, and I know that for families living with autism, they're keenly concerned about mercury being absorbed by human beings. A few weeks ago, we had the editor of E! the Environmental Magazine on uh, Go Green Radio, and we were talking about how, uh, you know, they've done a lot of blood work on children with autism, and they found that the levels of mercury and other heavy metals in their bloodstream tends to be much, much higher than children without autism. Um, a lot of our Go Green Radio listeners, though, may not be familiar with the health risks associated with mercury and the issues around its use and proper disposal. If you would, explain that issue to us, and then talk about the programs that PSI has to address mercury.
2: Yeah, mercury has been uh, the highest priority um, material. I guess toxic material that um, waste management officials have been trying to remove from the waste stream, source reduce it so it's not in products, and also once it's in products, to make sure that they don't go into incinerators or landfills. Uh, mercury enters the environment really if we look at it from two main sources. One is from products. Uh, and the other is from coal-fired power plants, uh, many from, you know, uh, from the west that are blowing, uh, midwest to blowing to the, to the east where there's deposition of the mercury and, uh, the mercury can enter into, uh, the water, uh, and then it, um, it gets taken up by the fish and the, the little fish are eaten by the bigger fish and then the mercury gets concentrated in those big fish, uh, and that is why, uh, many and, or I can say most um state um states have uh fish advisories uh... that are telling uh, pregnant women children and others to limit the amount of fish uh that you're eating because of the mercury content so there are huge implications uh, commercially um and for our daily lives uh, in terms of the mercury that's getting into the environment now in terms of products there's uh maybe four basic products where there's a lot of mercury um, concentrated. Thermostats is one of the largest. You get four grams of mercury per thermostat, which is quite a lot. It's it's an ampule, It's a globule of mercury. All of us loved to play with these little things when we were kids, but it's not a good idea. (laughs) And it it is very, very toxic. Um, Fluorescent lamps, the CFLs have mercury in them. auto switches also where you open up a trunk and the light goes on that switch um, is, is has been um, uh, turned on by a by a mercury switch uh, and also dental amalgam there 's mercury in our teeth so the ones we're working on are particularly thermostats and fluorescent lamps, with some on uh, the auto switches uh, as well. So it shows a real need to change product design to get mercury out of products, and then if, it, if we can't do that, if it's absolutely needed, we need to collect the mercury so it doesn't go into uh, a waste to energy plant um, or into a landfill. And I can talk just a, br- a brief bit on thermostats. Um, we did develop. Um, uh, a number of agreements with the thermostat manufacturers about 4 or 5 years ago uh they they cooperated working with us um, to collect um the thermostats uh, in their the industry run program the thermostat recycling corporation they collect at uh heating and cooling um uh wholesaler locations and then with our um uh assistance they expanded it to heating and cooling contractors, also local household hazardous waste collection centers, uh and at retail. Uh we also developed the model state piece of legislation that is now law in seven states, but the industry uh over the past two years has started to oppose uh, legislation. This might get into some other things that we talk about in terms of some of the opposition we get. So here we had an industry group that was extremely supportive for two, three years and then did an about face because for whatever reasons internally, uh, maybe they thought, uh, um, that they were gonna make some money, uh, from, from moving into these initiatives or they, uh, weren't sure of the cost of it, some miscalculations, but they've been, uh, very, very opposed to legislation that would be, um, uh, making them reach certain performance standards, performance goals. Um this is General Electric, Honeywell, White Rogers, uh, as part of the Thermostat Recycling Corporation and as part of their lobbying arm, NEMA, which is the National Electrical Manufacturers Association. So, there are many, uh, manufacturers that are working with us, some that oppose the work that we're doing, um, when it doesn't seem to maybe m- match with their internal missions. Um, uh, And over time, sometimes you get some that support in the beginning and then oppose after a while. So it's a tricky business.
1: Well, it is, and I definitely want to touch on this because I know that a lot of our Go Green Radio listeners like to be active uh, when it comes to public policy setting, and they're going to want to know more about this. So we'll definitely take that up in the next segment. Folks, don't go away. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back with more Go Green Radio right after this.
3: Listen to the stars of PR with Cindy R every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific time here on News Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Hey, Dad. What? I can't get the ketchup bottle open.
0: Here, let me try.
3: <clears throat> here you go. Thanks.
0: For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck.
1: Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. We're glad to have you, and we're also very, very glad to have our guest today. We have Scott Cassell, who's the founder and executive director of the Product Stewardship Institute. And if you'd like to look at his website, if you're just joining us, open up a new tab in your web browser and go to www.productstewardship.com. Dot us and there you can follow along as we talk about some of the programs that PSI has going in order to keep us all safe, keep toxic products out of the waste stream and out of our waterways. We were talking about public policy, which is one of my my hobbies, as many of you Go Green Radio listeners know. Uh, just before the break, we began to segue into some of the public policy work that PSI and and Scott have been working on over the past few years. And, Scott, I want to pick up where we left off. I know that you have been involved, and PSI has been involved in some public policy work. Let's start with legislation that you've been a part of that's been signed into law. You have a bill from Oregon that's a great example. Tell our Go Green Radio listeners about that and kind of give us an overview of the process you went through in order to successfully see that bill become signed and, and become law.
2: Sure, I'd be happy to do that. Um, So paint is one of those issues that everybody can relate to. Um, As many of the products that, that we work on, they're all consumer products, but paint, everybody has leftover paint somewhere in your basement, in your closet, you know, somewhere. So, you know, Don't be shy or bashful (laughs) out there. We all have, we all have this paint. We all have, intend to use up the paint, uh, that we, that we have, but we, we have leftover. And as a matter of fact, 10% of all paint purchased becomes leftover, and that, uh, comes to about 75 million gallons per year in the United States, which if we were to manage that all um properly in terms of you know collection and reusing or recycling or properly disposing, it would cost over half a billion dollars a year to manage uh-huh. that pain. About eight dollars per liquid gallon to manage that. So this is a huge problem. And it was one of the first um problems that was brought to our attention by our local governments because they're the ones that are collecting in the local household hazardous waste programs. And this was the largest cost for them, the largest by volume uh, and the largest cost. So they asked us to work on this issue and uh we went to the paint industry um, about uh, 7 years ago um and um I remember giving a presentation uh in Washington DC before the Architectural Coatings Committee of the National Paint and Coatings Association now they're called the American Coatings Association um and I spoke to a room large room full of executives and gave you know a, a pitch about working together and how we can you know really do some good things and and get on the same page and after I was done I asked if there were any questions and I could hear a pin drop. it was so, it was so quiet. I, I was really concerned about what was going to happen, um, and uh, They ushered me out of the room right afterwards. But what happened there was they, they, it was a wake up call I think for them that that uh, there was um, uh, not only um, this potential risk but also there was an opportunity for them to work with an organization that could bring together a, a whole bunch of states um, and we can develop something together um so that we could so that they um uh, could have a program that was accepted in the in the uh, state and local agencies um and one that's not uh unilaterally um uh, forced on them by legislation and they had some bad experiences in California and Minnesota which introduced legislation so they they wanted they didn't want to see a piecemeal approach across the United States they uh then they decided to give it a shot so we worked together um for as I said, seven years, and, and there's a lot to talk about. But in essence, we we developed two large uh, agreements, written agreements, memoranda of understanding um, that were signed by over 50 entities, including the paint industry re, uh, retailers. Uh, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, state and local governments, uh, painting contractors and others. And what this uh, did eventually, the paint industry went a- along the line of what I talked about before about some of these stages of acceptance of solving the problem and we're at a point uh where they have accepted full responsibility for setting up a collection and reuse or recycling or even source reduction system for the leftover paint in the United States and uh through the agreement we um it was um uh, we developed a model bill um that was passed in Oregon in July so Oregon is the first state it's called a pilot initiative um and that is being implemented now and then it's now being rolled out in uh... uh... There's legislation introduced in vermont connecticut and california that are active now and that will be introduced in five other states that are part of this memorandum of understanding that i mentioned before and we're learning as we go along but i really want to emphasize the pain industry uh has done it right they they're smart they've they've uh, decided they wanted to work with all the other stakeholders and i want to say it hasn't been easy you know every step along the way has been a negotiation a, a very difficult discussions at times but we've been able to get through it by consensus every step of the way for 7 years
1: well and i think that that regardless of where a person falls politically you have to look at a case like this As a a really smart case study, you know, if if you want to come to consensus, if you really want to get all the stakeholders on board, you have to let everybody come to the table. And in an instance where you have government, you have the industry, you have you know, uh, non-profit stakeholder groups all coming together and really working as a team to come up with manageable and economically feasible solutions, I mean, that's how things get done. That's problem solving at an adult level. Sometimes we see, you know, legislation being crammed down the industry's throats and they really don't have a chance to chime in unless they're lobbying against the bills. And this is really a great case study of of, you know, resolution at a very mature level. And I think that that's um, that's a really great example of how public policy should work. I mean, it really should be a team effort. I, I love the section on your website that shows the active legislation map. It lists current efforts in what you call extended producer responsibility bills. And I know that a lot of our Go Green Radio listeners are really feisty when it comes to being public poly public policy activist. I mean, I'm the same way. And we like to keep track of what our states are doing. In fact, when I was looking at your map, I found out that one of my Facebook friends is the co-author of a bill that's active in California. Talk to us and explain to our Go Green Radio listeners what EPR legislation is to begin with, and then what our listeners might be able to do to help advocate for those bills when they see them coming up in their states.
2: Sure. Um, Well, an EPR, Extended Producer Responsibility Bill, or Producer Responsibility, is where the manufacturer is required to uh, set up a system for the safe collection um, and reuse, recycling, uh, and or safe disposal of the end-of-life management of that product, whether it's a computer or thermostats or fluorescent lamps or pharmaceuticals, that they are responsible. They take over the ownership of it and really drive the process, which has been <clears throat> so unique uh, in, in paint where they, they, uh, they are own the process, even in terms of an educational p- campaign uh, and other messaging uh, uh, to, to the, the broader community. So that's what an EPR bill is. That's how we're um, defining it. Uh, as I mentioned before it's uh, including these end of life costs in the in the uh, cost of doing business for the company so it's considered just another cost of doing business uh, like uh like staff or, or or capital or rent or any of the other. Um, aspects and it's internalized in the ca- in the purchase price of that product. So when you're buying that product, it could be seen as you're also buying the recycling service at the same time or safe disposal of that product. So the consumer doesn't have to pay uh, in the back end these end of life fees. If they if a consumer has to pay when they dispose of that product, it's a real disincentive because you're asking that consumer to do the right thing, but then hitting them up. With that cost in the back end, and even though it may be a little bit more expensive up in the front end for that product, it psychologically hitting them in the back end causes many of these consumers to illegal illegally dispose of these products in places that cause problems for government, or they'll just stick it in the garbage, uh, and and that's not what we want it to have done. So that's an EPR um, bill, and uh, I would um, suggest for the listeners that uh, they can advocate in a number of ways. First, check our Website. We keep this active on a daily basis because we're working with all the officials that are introducing this legislation. We try to keep it as active as possible. And during this legislative season, uh, you, you understand that it changes uh, very often. Uh, but look on the website for your state, and if there's a piece of legislation being introduced, call your your state uh, senator uh, and state representative and tell them that you'd like them to support this Um it's as easy as that Um i'd say you can hook into our organization we can give you more direct uh... ways to uh... Uh, to influence the legislation and to get more up to speed. You know, I, I myself don't like to just support something because someone tells me, well, you know, just, just do this. I want to learn about it. So people can really learn about these initiatives and make up their own uh, decision about if it's a good thing to do. And I think that you'll find that it will be really helpful to you. And I'd also say to encourage manufacturers and retailers. So if you're in a, in a, in a retail location and you want them to collect a certain product, uh, tell them. Uh, if you uh, and, and the other thing is to right manufacture a little bit more difficult, but I'd say from the retail side it's probably more direct.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I, I'm a big believer, and, and I know that a lot of our Go Green Radio listeners feel similarly, that there is a great deal of power um, in the hands of consumers. Some people call it the power of the big green purse. Um, and And a lot of consumers are beginning to realize that, you know, if we kind of band together and say these are the kind of products or these are the kind of companies or retailers that we want to support with our money, uh, then we can have quite a bit of influence over, you know, what kind of products are offered or what kind of services are offered. And I think a lot of consumers are finding that very empowering. And I, I'm kind of a, I like to encourage power to the people, you know, I mean, use your funding as your vote of what kind of retailers and what kind of products you want to see in your community. Well, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break, but we'll be right back with more from Scott Cassell, the founder and executive director of the Product Stewardship Institute. So don't go away. We'll be right back in just a moment.
3: My name is Aaron, and I'm a survivor of mannequinism. Mannequinism is basically when you turn into a hard plastic shell. They say it's from not being politically active. For me, it started when I didn't register to vote. And then I stopped volunteering, and before I knew it, I wasn't doing anything. And that's when I found a small patch of plastic on my right shoulder. Protect yourself from mannequinism. Log on to fightmannequinism.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council.
0: Interstate Sportsman Talk Radio Show brings two well-known outdoorsmen to the Voice America Network with hunting and fishing info news. Talking about everything from new sporting gear, places to hunt and fish, and getting more from your recreation time. Join hosts Brock Ray and Don Kirk Friday mornings at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 Eastern, for the Interstate Sportsman on the Voice America Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
1: always so glad to have you join us. And if you're thinking, wow, this is an episode of Go Green Radio that you want to hear again or that you want to recommend to some of your friends, don't worry. There are a couple of ways that you can accomplish that. First of all, we're syndicated now on the Green Talk Network. So if you go to voiceamerica.com and you click on the Green Talk Network, you can hear this show again on Tuesdays at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon, Eastern time. So if you want to check it out again or tell your friends to to definitely uh, listen in. That's when you can do it, Tuesdays on the Green Talk Network from 9 to 10 on Pacific Time and noon to 1 Eastern Time. Uh, We're also archiving our podcast, so you can download it, listen to your iTunes, uh, put it on your iPod, and listen to Go Green Radio anytime you want to. So those are your options, folks, and we're always glad to have your feedback. So if you have any ideas for shows that we can do in the future or questions that you may have, don't hesitate to give us a shout-out at gogreenradio at gmail.com. Well, we are back with Scott Cassell, the founder and executive director of the Product Stewardship Institute. That's www.productstewardship.us. You've got to check out his website. And I know that those of you who have been listening to the show are probably excited about what he's doing, you're supportive of the work that his organization is doing, and you'd like to get involved. Scott, I'd love for you to tell our listeners how they can get involved with the Product Stewardship Institute and the important work that you're doing. You have membership opportunities listed on your website. Tell us more about how to get involved as a member and what the membership benefits are.
2: Great. Thank you very much, Jill, for the opportunity. Um, You mentioned our website, uh, and so those that are uh, listening now and that are online can go to Product Stewardship. Dot us and on the home page you'll see there's a button for membership. Uh, you can click on that button and in the middle of the page there it says new, PSI's individual membership. Uh, if you're an individual, obviously, you can go there and see um, click on that and you can see the benefits that are offered um which are networking conference calls which I'm not sure we had a chance to talk about yet but we have uh, technical conference calls on various uh, product categories like uh, electronic waste um we have we're doing uh, these are the ones we're going to be doing over the the spring is electronic waste legislation uh, plastic bag issue because that's been very big on people's agenda um food waste um, also on the life cycle issues, looking at the full life cycle impacts from the mining of products and the manufacture of them through use and transportation all the way to disposal. I'm um, also looking at solar panels, um, the uh, recycling needed there, and some of the environmental impacts from uh, these uh, energy efficient uh manufacturing of products and then safer cosmetics is the last one so that just gives you an idea of some of the types of networking calls that we have here we also um, have product stewardship email updates which are um, little summaries of uh... issues that we think that uh, you should know about from the united states canada and europe and other locations around the globe we have a newsletter uh... listservs and we also have an annual forum. So that would be just the individual membership. Uh, and if you go back to uh, that other page where uh, we're the basic membership page. We have uh, membership for state and local government officials and also for corporations, organizations, and academic institutions. And one last thing, if you don't want to become a member at all and just want to get a newsletter, you can go to the home page and on the right hand side, down a little ways there, the third Thing. Under the maps, it says, I'd like to like to receive our newsletter. Sign up here. And you can just get a newsletter once a quarter and just check us out from afar.
1: Well, and those are a lot of great benefits, a lot of great options. I'd like to talk just a little bit more about your conference calls. Uh, the topics that you mentioned are, are fascinating, very timely, very current and rele- relevant. Um, but tell us a little bit more about how they work and uh, you know, who's on the calls and, and who you might get to talk to or, or what you'll be able to do after you get this information. Talk to us a little bit more in depth about how your conference calls work.
2: Sure. Well, these are 90-minute uh, conference calls. We facilitate them here. Senior staff at uh, PSI um, are the moderators of these calls, and we pick them as, as you said, um, cutting-edge topics. Uh, ones that we think, uh, our, our members, uh, would be interested in. Things which are, uh, um, uh, either basic. We do product stewardship 101 calls sometimes or maybe on, on paint. Uh, and we would get the people who are actively involved in it. So for the paint legislation call, we actually, we had the, um, uh, person who is most active in the uh, paint industry for the manufacturers. We had, uh, an individual from the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency uh... and others from the state and local government who are presenting about what they have done and the key roles that they've played Um and we uh... we have it so that uh... there is some presentation i'd say about half presentation and information and the other half active facilitation and uh, opportunities to ask questions on the line as well as by email so there's a lot of input um on these calls we've also had Dow chemical uh... on these calls on um Uh, on green chemistry, as well as uh, one of the founders of the green chemistry movement. Um, We had Walmart on a call that had to do with sustainability ratings of products. So we like to um, have on, again, the representation from uh, industry, government, environmental groups, um, and others that make up our multi-stakeholder network.
1: Well, I mean, these calls sound like something that every environmental journalist ought to be on. I mean, you're talking about access to the subject matter experts that can sometimes be very difficult to get a hold of. I mean um, boy, it just sounds like an awesome opportunity for anybody who's blogging or writing or podcasting about environmental issues, uh, this just seems like an ideal opportunity. Um, now you and I both know that in order to accomplish some of the work that your organization is doing and, and my organization, is is trying to do. It takes a lot of teamwork, and you've had a lot of partnerships and sponsors along the way. Um, what companies or organizations have really helped you the most in terms of helping you expand your influence with the PSI?
2: yeah well we have um again the government um you know memberships of course uh you know the state and local agencies have been the core for p s i and we have uh forty five states right now um at the at the head of the agency is uh... Are, have come on as members and multiple people from all those agencies same with local governments um... but uh... And we are multi-stakeholder and we've worked with uh... many different companies uh... those that have been most supportive have really been the waste management companies that see a an opportunity um for them either to keep some of these materials uh, out of the waste stream like our sponsor uh, Covanta. Covanta is a uh sustaining partner of PSI and have been very supportive of our organization. They've uh even been active on legislative initiatives to keep out mercury products from the waste stream and that has been extremely valuable. Um, other companies such as Waste Management um, has been uh, a big partner of ours, uh, Sharps Compliance Inc., uh EXP uh, is a pharmaceutical um, return distributor. They collect uh, pharmaceuticals. Um, and so they have been very active with us. We also work though, with um, the pain industry, as I said, the American Coatings Association um, has been a, a good partner with us on on different projects, as has you know Benjamin Moore, Don Edwards, mm-hmm. Sherwin Williams, and the companies they represent. We also work with Dell. HP, Sony, Sharp, Panasonic, and the electronics companies, uh, and Pfizer is one of our corporate partners as well from the pharmaceutical end. King Pharmaceuticals has also been, uh, a a sponsor of many of our projects. So we're that's working with them that. in many ways and it's very important. Um and, and that's how we're seen as an organization that works closely with the companies. And I just want to mention a couple of the retailers. The Retail Industry Leaders Association is a corporate partner as well of ours. They represent Home Depot, Walmart, and Lowe's. Uh, Staples uh, developed uh, early on a pilot take back of electronics that's now a national program. So we're working with uh, all these different groups, uh, Ace, True Value, Best Buy, uh, very very good and very supportive of our work.
1: Well, and your work is very, is very important, and I'm glad to hear that you have so many big-name partners who are helping you expand your influence. I mean, we all stand to benefit from keeping toxins out of our waste stream, and, and I really applaud what you're doing. Thanks so much for joining us, Scott, and thank you so much for joining us. Everybody who's out there listening we will be back same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio.